This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein and I'm here today with my fabulous coworker, Pat Brisbane. Uh, so you're here because you have been writing a book on Haskell. I am. I feel like I'm on a talk show promoting something. You are. You're doing, yeah. like a, you're doing a book tour That's right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's it called? It is called Maybe Haskell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beginner book mm-hmm. for you know people interested in Haskell. Um, doesn't assume any Haskell knowledge uh, and sort of walks you through just enough Haskell to talk about something that I think is interesting but is still sort of at the simpler end of the spectrum, so a little more palatable, uh, which is the maybe data type, which mm-hmm. is how Haskell deals with uh, not having nulls or nils in the language. Mm-hmm. So you have a function that could return a value, but sometimes right. there's not a, a valid value to return. Exactly. Like you're looking up a user in the database by ID, and sometimes there's a user and sometimes there's not. Right. So in Ruby, we typically return nil yep. in those cases. Mm-hmm. And that just destroys your life. Yeah, it does. It's one of those things that tends to like kind of go viral throughout the system, right? Yep. Like the, fun- the the method that calls the method that calls the method that returns nil. Mm-hmm. They all need to guard for that. Yep. You either have to have all these nil checks or you end up with a production exception that's like miles away from where the actual source of the problem is. Right, which is really uh, Which is the best. Uh, so Haskell's solution, um, not having a nil to sort of take the easy way out, is to change the return type of such an expression. Mm-hmm. So instead of find user returning a user, it actually returns a maybe user. And a maybe user can either be just the user or it can be nothing. And at first it kind of sounds like nothing is the same thing as nil, so like what's the big deal? Um, but it's actually not a lot more powerful than that. Um, you can see in the type system that this function returns a maybe value. So you know that there's a chance that that user might not be there and you're forced to handle both cases, either the just user or the nothing. Right. Um, That's the first benefit is you can't forget. Right, right. Because right. it's easy to forget or, or not even know in the first place. Like, oh, this thing can return a nil sometimes. I have to handle this. Exactly. Um, and then the flip side of that is that when you have expressions or values that aren't of type maybe, that are type user, you can be 100% confident that it's there. And you don't have to worry about exceptions from trying to access it when it's not really there. Yeah. And then the nice thing that you sort of get to when you have this data type is that you have functions in the system that operate on the value of user. Yep. Uh, and they don't care that the fact that sometimes it's not going to be there. Like you can sort of shield them from this reality. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you can have the functions that need to care about this can care. Yep. And then you have sort of uh, convenient higher level abstractions to make it very easy to take functions that operate on users and sort of promote them into functions that operate on maybe users. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the first things I talk about called functor, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, one of those scary category theory things that is actually not terribly complicated um, and just makes your life a lot better. Yeah. So I, I really like this approach overall. It was interesting because you, you took this idea and bec- with this idea, it lets you bump into a handful of like interesting things in mm-hmm. Haskell. But it wasn't like, here's a book to teach you all of Haskell. Right. It was like, here's the, here are the rudiments, and then we're going to explore this kind of interesting area of the language that mm-hmm. will kind of let us almost accidentally bump into these interesting ideas. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely the idea. Because if you aim to write a book to teach someone all of Haskell, first of all, I don't feel qualified to do it. Mm-hmm. And secondly, it's going to be a huge book. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people sort of drop out as they get into it. Because it, it really, it's a very deep topic, which is why I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to provide something that would get people hooked Mm-hmm. So sort of go beyond the level of, you know, clever tweets, but not so far as in you have to invest a whole lot of time. Yeah, it's kind of a nice happy medium. Mm-hmm. 
Because the book is pretty approachable. It's like 70 pages or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's definitely short. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've, I'm almost done reading it for the second time because I've been reviewing it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's nice to have something that you feel is digestible. Yes. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So I've seen this a lot in Vim, which is certain things in programming, or I guess every, every in the world, have like this sort of myth of being very complicated or hard to learn. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's true, but like they tend to get blown out of proportion. Yeah. So people... I found that with, with Vim, over-exaggerate how hard it is to learn. Yeah. Uh, and I think a similar thing happens to Haskell. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, for the longest time, it was created by and worked on by academics doing programming language theory. So most of the literature out there sort of had that paper academic feel to it. Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't any interest in making it a popular language, mm-hmm. which I think is great because they could make decisions that resulted in what we have today, which is a very principled and, and uh, safe language that you know didn't take any shortcuts, mm-hmm. um, which I think is awesome. Uh, but that did kind of, you know, at least partially lead to a language that people are sort of afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of put it on this pedestal that it's, you know, it is deep, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call it hard. Mm-hmm. And it has it has a number of things that are unfamiliar. Yes. And it's kind of that easy versus simple thing where like it has things that you probably have not heard of before and the words sound kind of scary, like right. functor and applicative. Like these sound like scary topics, but in fact are like fairly understandable things when you get into yeah. them. And if yeah. you sort of allow yourself to feel that like, wow, this seems a little scary, but I'm going to try to learn it anyway, like yeah. has been... <laughs> important to me yeah just kind of like this seems weird and foreign but i'm just gonna press forward and like okay i kind of get it this is just like not that bad yeah yeah i see a lot when people are learning and thinking about haskell there's a danger of mistaking unfamiliarity with unreadability Mm -hmm. and mistaking different with difficult totally that's why i think people that come to haskell first and have no object-oriented background have a much better time Mm -hmm. than people that need to sort of unlearn a lot of what they already have totally so what was your writing process like Well, it started actually as a blog series. Um, I wrote maybe five articles focused around maybe and submitted them as a PR to the blog. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was Caleb probably who has been sort of trying to jumpstart or re-jumpstart our book Mm -hmm. area, uh, asked me if I would do it as a book. So Mm -hmm. I said, sure. Um, So I had a lot of material already ready. Um, I just had to convert it into paperback format, which is the tool that we use to author the various formats. Uh, that explains why you got, some, got it done so quickly. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it was was already taken care of. And luckily, I had some breaks between client projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I probably... The blog post I sort of wrote on Fridays, maybe two or three Fridays. Mm-hmm. And then I had a two-week period between client projects that I got most of the content done. Yep. And then these past two or three weeks have been another break where I was able to sort of push it the rest of the way. Did you start at the beginning and then work your way towards the end? I sort of started in the middle Um, I had sort of the heart of the book, which is the description of the maybe data type and then the other concepts, the functor and applicative and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of wrote the introduction and the Haskell basics after that and then came back to do the ending, which is some other data types that are similar and interesting. Mm -hmm. It it was interesting to me to see different parts of the book it feels kind of like you hit your stride mm-hmm. in certain sections and stuff so, like some of them feel a little more awkward some of them feel like yeah like you you, you knew what you were going to say and like you said it well here yeah yeah there there's definitely some difficulty when i had a lot of material that i was really i don't know how to put it i i knew what i wanted to say going into it and so i was able to say it really well but then there was other material that i sort of needed to add to make it feel complete yep. um, but didn't come out as well because it just wasn't you know 
as purposeful, I guess. Mm, it was striking to me, your, the first section of the book was like an introduction to Haskell, like Haskell fundamentals. Mm -hmm. uh, and like you're pretty far from a Haskell beginner. Yeah, so that's hard. hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to go back and write those intro sections and not and to know what you're not explaining. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why like I... I think I have more notes on that chapter than anything else. Because yeah. it's like, I, I am, I was new to Haskell at that point. And so it's like, everything was like, what is this? What is this? What is this? Yeah. And that feedback was absolutely crucial. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, I would just be guessing at like what's necessary to go deeper and, and what's necessary to not. So having those, what is this notes was, was perfect. Cause I could just go in and, you know, turn that sentence into a paragraph. Right. And now it's that much better. Totally. Yeah. Well, if you have an acknowledgement page, I mean, that's people you could put on there. <laughs> Uh, so just at a high level, so what, what does the book cover? We, we talk about functors and... Yep. So we start with the maybe data type mm -hmm. and then we show how it uh, has the correct interface to be called a functor. So we, we maybe have not explained, I guess we, we did kind of explain maybe, but maybe a little just bit. Do, do, go a little bit more into maybe, like what is the maybe data type? Right. So it's a, uh, in, in Haskell, data types can have multiple constructors, which is multiple ways to build a value of that type. Yep. Um, so maybe has two constructors. It has the just constructor, which takes an actual value and mm -hmm. gives you a maybe value, which mm -hmm. happens to be there. Um, and it also has the nothing constructor, which you don't give it a value because nothing's there. Right. But what you still get back is a maybe thing. Mm -hmm. It just happens to not be there. Right. Um, so once you have this maybe thing, you can pass that around and then you can use another thing called pattern matching to basically inspect how was this value constructed. If it was constructed with just, then I get that user and I can do something with it. Mm -hmm. If it was constructed with nothing, then I also have to handle that case. So like if you, if you think of maybe user, mm -hmm. you, you sort of have two pieces, which is sort of like you have the user itself and mm -hmm. then this uh, context of this may or may not be there. Right. And so the if you have a just user, that means this thing is there, mm -hmm. and here's you can get you can get the user out whenever you want. Right. If you have nothing, it's like this thing was not there. Yeah. They both kind of fall under this maybe type. Right. And this that that's actually a really good point. This idea that the maybe user represents two pieces of information mm -hmm. is sort of the generic idea that you can take to other types. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I go through either and list and I/O and things like that, and those are other types that also hold two pieces of information. Mm -hmm. um, so a list is a good example. You have this uh, list of A's. You have, or I'll, I'll make it concrete: a list of users. Mm -hmm. um, it tells you that you have a user. It also tells you that you have many users, and it tells you exactly how many users. Mm -hmm. The list is that other piece of information, the length. Yep. So that's the maybe data type. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about how it's a functor, which are things that you can map over. Mm -hmm. uh, so a functor is a scary word, but it kind of yeah, just means like mappable, right? That's one way to think about it, yeah. Functor, applicative, and monad are all interfaces. So if you think about, you know, in Ruby, you have enumerable or comparable. Mm -hmm. um, numeric is another way to think about it. So multiple types can be numbers, integers, rationals, floats. They can all be numbers. Mm -hmm. Multiple types can be functors. Right. Lists can be functors. Maybe can be functors, things like that. So it basically says to be a functor, I have to implement a certain function mm -hmm. with a certain type signature. Yep. And then obey these certain laws to yep. behave well. Exactly. And then I can say I'm a functor. And anything mm -hmm. that expects a functor can use me in that way. Exactly. Cool. So it's kind of like normal programming interfaces or protocols yep. or things like that. Exactly. Gotcha. And applicative and monad are also just the same thing. It's the same the same type of construct. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so functor is the simplest. It has a function called fmap, which basically means if, if I have a function that goes from A to B, how do I make a function that goes from maybe A to maybe B? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that allows you to take these functions in your system that work on users that are actually there, and you just give that function to fmap, and you get back a function that works on maybe users, mm-hmm. um, which is super convenient. And it's nice that it's it's kind of a beautiful division of working on concrete values and being aware of the fact that the value might not be there. Yeah. Like, it lets you keep those separate. Totally Like, separate. you don't have those those checks in your functions that work on users, but you can promote them into a thing that takes a maybe mm-hmm. user, but in a sort of separate conceptual space right right so haskell lets you have these types that hold two pieces of information which is nice and it also lets you completely separately either operate on that other piece of information or operate on that value itself Mm -hmm. so you write functions that can operate on users and you write a function called fmap that knows how to deal with this other piece of information whether it's there or not and then you put those two together to actually operate on a maybe value okay and then applicative applicative has a also an interface also an interface yep um so it's a set of behaviors that a type needs to have in order to be able to say that it's an applicative Mm -hmm. um it's related to functors uh the category term is actually applicative functor Mm -hmm. um so with a functor you've got a maybe user uh with applicative functors it means that that thing inside can be applied which means it's a function Mm -hmm. so it's a little weird to say but you might have a maybe you know, user to string. Mm-hmm. That user to string function is actually inside of the maybe value. So that construct has, uh, it actually has two functions that you have to implement, but I only talk about one of them in the book, mm-hmm. um, and that's called apply. And that basically uh, just lets you take this maybe function mm-hmm. and apply it to a maybe value to get a maybe result. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to, starting to sound a little yeah, abstract. it gets a little hand wavy. It's, it's, you know, read the book. I, totally. think I think I do a better job there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's just one of those things where you need to see a lot of examples and kind of live with it for a while. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's super useful for parsing is one one area where it's used a lot. Just because it allows you to write expressions that look like there's no maybe there. Mm-hmm. So if you've got, you know, let's say you've got this user that's made up of a string and an, and an int that represents their name and age. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would normally make a user just by applying this user function to a string and an int, and mm-hmm. it gives you back a user. Uh, applicative lets you write an expression that looks almost exactly like that, except mm-hmm. it takes as arguments a maybe string and a maybe int, mm-hmm. and it gives you back a maybe user. Right. And so if the name and the age are there, you get back a user, but mm-hmm. if either are not there, you get back a nothing. Exactly. But the stuff along the way doesn't really need to care about the maybe. Exactly. Yeah. And that again, is, is beautiful separation of concerns because mm-hmm. the, the definition of apply is what worries about the maybe and what handles whether things are there or not. Mm-hmm. And you just get to write code that shows how to build a user. Totally. I'm imagining that people listening to this that aren't super familiar with Haskell are probably not quite getting this, and that's mm-hmm. totally like reasonable. Like I, I spent a lot of time reading the book and understanding it and, and, and thinking about it. Um, but it's it's actually not super complicated when you get into it. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, like with with some good examples and a little bit of time, like it was it was a very understandable concept. It, mm-hmm. it, it feels a little weird uh, to hear it for the first time, so don't worry if you're not getting it. But uh, it's a reasonable idea. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you want to touch on Monad real quick? Yeah, that leads us into Monad, which is usually the first thing people hear because there's like, you know, that terrible joke about mentioning Monads and what is a Monad and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you start with with Functor and build your way up to Applicative, jumping to Monad is not that huge of a leap. Mm-hmm. Um, the only difference with Monad is that you can, um, with Applicative, when we built that user from those two maybe values, the maybe name and the maybe uh, age, mm-hmm. those sort of 
the name and the age kind of went into the user together at once. Mm -hmm. There was no dependency between those two maybe values. Right, between the name and the age. Right. So when you sort of upgrade to a monad, you get this ability to depend on other computations. Mm -hmm. uh, so you could have a, a maybe name or something like that, and you can sort of feed it into a function that depends on what that name value is, mm -hmm. not only whether or not it's there. Um, so you can get the type safety of if you're missing parts of things, you get a nothing result, but you can also actually check what those parts are when they're there, mm -hmm. um, which again, it's, it sounds really confusing, but it's not that bad. It's not. It really isn't. So what about in general uh, learning Haskell? So this book was kind of my introduction to Haskell. I have read a bit of Learn You a Haskell as mm -hmm. well. Like, do you, where, where do you see this book, like your stuff falling into the, the spectrum and like what order would you? Yeah. I so mean, when we're brand new. It seems a little bold to want to be people's first Haskell book, but mm -hmm. that's kind of where I was aiming it, mm -hmm. um, just to sort of give you a taste of the language, yep. show you some cool things, and motivate you to go actually learn it using some other more complete reference. Mm -hmm. That actually worked pretty well for me. Like, I, I, The book was pretty much my first exposure, more or less, and I found myself like supplementing a little bit with learning you a Haskell here and there. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this applicative thing is really cool. I want to read someone else's description of it, right. and just would go like look at that, and like, it kind of helps some things click for me. Yeah, and, and that's what I've found, at least myself. You know, that's, that's kind of why people sort of talk down of like monad tutorials and things like that as being confusing or yep. you know weird abstractions the bottom line is you have to read them all like mm -hmm. these these abstractions are only going to make sense when you look at them from a lot of different directions totally um so you know read mine see how mine is but mm -hmm. make sure you go read others as well yeah I, I think it could work as a as a first haskell book i think it actually is a good fit and it's un, it's approachable right it's like it's not a long read and so if you pick up learn, like learn you a haskell it's 500 pages or something mm -hmm, like that mm -hmm. but this is like you could get this in a day or two yeah uh, through maybe haskell and it's sort of a nice teaser i guess in a yeah. way that gives you just enough that's like wow this does seem interesting and that's kind of like when my appreciation for haskell kicked in was like after reading your book yeah it's like, okay i'm starting to get the gist of like why this is cool yeah that's always the hard part when you're really excited about something and you just kind of sound like a lunatic when you're <laughs> trying to get other people to drink the kool-aid right um there were some times where i just like crossed out sentences <laughs> it was like just don't don't do this <laughs> yeah i know yeah. you're excited yeah that's natural though um let's talk about haskell with thoughtbot in general actually yeah um i've been super lucky in that you know, people at ThoughtBot are excited about it, mm -hmm. um, especially Joe, the CTO, which is always, you know, always great to have a C-level on board. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing a lot, um, and I've been fortunate enough to be a big part of it, mm -hmm. uh, which is make, makes me super happy. So th there's been a couple things that we've done that I think sort of like let the Haskell kind of sneak in the back door a little mm -hmm. bit. Like, what, what were those things? Well, the first thing we did was a, a reading group uh, to read Learn Yo Haskell for Great Good. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we had had reading groups before, I guess, and it sort of, you know, went up and down in popularity. So uh, Joe decided to bring it back with this book. And I thought it went pretty well. Uh, we started with, a, I want to say, like eight or nine people mm -hmm. uh, reading the book together through the first few chapters. And by the end of it, I think we were down to like two or three. Mm -hmm. uh, people sort of dropped off as the material got deeper and deeper. Yep. Um, but it did plant the seed in a few people. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, we went from two to four and then four to six in terms of interest. Yep. And then we started, I think the next thing we did was upcase exercises, mm -hmm. um, just sort of as a beta internal thing, not released yet. So that was super useful because people need things to write. Like that's the big next step after you read the book mm -hmm. is to not forget the material. You mm -hmm. actually have to sit down and work on a project. Yeah. Uh, so those exercises were 
definitely useful for that. So those, those were, were a beta at one point, but now they're out. They are out now, yes. Yeah, people can actually do them. Yes. So sign up for Upcase. Yeah, do that. And, and do, do some Haskell. <laughs> and then there was also Project Night. Yeah, well, Project Night's actually the most recent thing. Okay. Uh, before that, oh. we actually shipped some Haskell. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so we wanted to you know, evaluate shipping an actual production application for ourselves before looking for client work. Sure. Um, so we decided to add comments to our blog as sort of a you know third-party Discus-like system that you can just kind of plug in. Yep. Um, so we call that Carnival, um, and that's actually open source, uh, which has been really great because when I have discussions with people about things, I can link them to it, um, and they can see you know real-world examples of you know actual production web apps mm-hmm. written in Haskell, uh, which is great. Yep. And that was that went pretty well. Yeah. There was some. Depl- I remember like the, the development went well. Deployment was kind of a pain at first. Yeah. I mean. Ha- the Haskell side of things was super easy. You know, it's a it's a JSON API with a JavaScript front end, and that was done relatively quickly. Yep. Um, and if we had taken some shortcuts, deployment would have been fine. But we really wanted to see what would happen when we tried to do this using our actual deployment practices, right? Uh, which is use CoffeeScript and deploy to Heroku, right? And those two things were the biggest headache out of all of it. Interesting. It's always the tooling. I know. I know. So, you know, that was a hassle. We muddled through it. We finally got it done. Um, I would go into the, you know, the ultimate solution, except that the problem's gotten better since then. Right. Um, so Was that from Heroku's work? That was actually from a project called Halkion and a Haskell on Heroku build pack, which uses Halkion. Okay. And um, I actually, I I don't know the developer's full name. I know his username is Mitek, M-I-E-T-E-K. Um, and he's just been all over the place developing this thing. Just crazy, crazy effort and awesome. made a really solid tool. Um, so we moved over to that for deployments. Awesome. Um, and it's been pretty smooth sailing since then. It's still There's still hiccups here and there, but light years ahead of where we were when we originally launched. Yeah, so if you're thinking of building a web service with Haskell, you can deploy to Heroku mm-hmm. pretty reasonably. Yep, absolutely. Nice. So that was Carnival. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pr- production system number one. There's another one now. Hmm. Yeah, uh, you actually just launched one on Upcase. <laughs> we did. It actually worked out pretty well. So if you're if you're an Upcase user, you are currently <laughs> running Haskell. Yeah, you have some Haskell running in the cloud, as it were. Yeah. So uh, Joe had this idea. You know, as part of the exercise system, you need to take in diffs of users' exercises, right? Um, and parse them and display them back. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joe had written this code in Ruby. And found that that it was the biggest source of bugs. Right. Uh, the code was hard to follow. There was a lot of edge case bugs. Um, and with parsing being a known good use case for Haskell, mm-hmm. uh, he wanted to see if we could extract a small service just to handle diff parsing. Right. Uh, take in the raw text and spit out some structured JSON of, of what that diff is. Right. Uh, and we quickly found out that there was already a library for parsing diffs in Haskell, so we weren't even going to get to write that. Mm. Um, but we did wrap it up in a web service, which went very smoothly. And uh, when did you guys launch that? Uh, like two days ago. Yeah. yeah. So that's out there now. Yeah. So it's it's live in production. The, the interesting thing was, um, so the Ruby version uh, uses about 250 megs of memory, mm-hmm. and the uh, Haskell one uses two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and returns in about five milliseconds. Yeah. It's really fast. It's kind of awesome that you, could, you can write this really crazy high-level safe language and then it's really fast. Yeah. And resource usage is really reasonable. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the optimizations that the compiler can do when you're writing pure code is, is incredible. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. 
So there's two systems in production. I know that we we haven't like announced this like in a, in a huge way, but we're looking to do a, ha- a project in Haskell. Yes, actually, I'm, I'm announcing it here on the podcast. Oh boy! So if you if you want us to come write you some Haskell, or not come, <laughs> but if you want to come to us and have us write you some Haskell, we have production experience. We got a guy that wrote a book. Uh, we're looking to like make this thing happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that would be uh, that's sort of the next step, right? Is like, yes, you know, that's our that's our big next thing. Get paid to do it. Yep. That's when it becomes a real thing. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think there are a handful of problems that are really good fits mm-hmm. for Haskell, right? So like parsing stuff, for instance, yeah. if you need that performance. Um, but it's also sort of a generally useful language, so it almost doesn't even need to be especially No, it definitely tailored. doesn't. Um, I think personally, and I don't speak for the company, but I think personally it's more about finding the right client than it is the right project. Yep. Um, so we need a client that either does not care at all what we build something in mm-hmm. or is actively open and excited to the idea of using you know a, a newer better well it's not a newer language but a newer idea anyway mm-hmm. uh, using haskell in production like this and sees the things that we see in yeah. it as the benefits yeah so if that's you or you know someone like that then <laughs> get in touch email pat pat at thoughtbot yep and uh, we'll take care of you absolutely uh so you've done some oh, uh, there's one other thing i think that contributed to the sort of haskell at thoughtbot uh renaissance which we're enjoying right now which was swift Yes. That contributed a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Once Swift got announced and, you know, the functional ideas in there, um, I had sort of a whole new batch of people to yell at about Haskell. Mm-hmm. Our iOS guys are our biggest sort of Haskell enthusiasts. Right. Which was interesting to see. Yeah. It's kind of like good good luck and good timing yeah. that these guys suddenly needed to know about, you know, optional values and mm-hmm. things like that. And so it just, uh, there's a lot of, a fair amount of overlap in, in, with Haskell. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really fun to see Tony and Gordon uh, re-implement Haskell libraries in Swift. Uh, mm-hmm. Like they have Argo, which is their JSON parsing library that's pretty much directly modeled after ASIN, the mm-hmm. Haskell version, and mm-hmm. uses applicative functors to handle the parsing. Yep. Um, and that seems to have been well-received. Well I guess the community is a little split on whether they're on board with these sort of further down the functional road ideas. Hmm. Um, Who cares? Yeah. I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> I vote yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so that was a nice a boon there. Yeah. So you've done some uh, Haskell open source stuff yourself. I have. Some uh, yes so Is that sort of your biggest amount of batch of contributions, would you say? I would say, yeah. I uh, I started using yes when it was really early on, when it was like 0.1. Uh-huh. Um, the early days were, were pretty rough because he was not worried about breaking changes. Sure. So having a blog written using early versions of yes every update was craziness yes um, so does a web framework yes probably should say that yeah. um, it's like the rails of haskell basically mm-hmm. um, there are a couple web frameworks in haskell um, i'm not familiar with any of them other than you unfortunately mm-hmm. um, but i do know that you is the sort of bigger does more things for you mm-hmm. version than others like snap would be more like sinatra whereas you is more like rails gotcha um, and it was super easy to get involved you know the developer uh, michael Snyman was was always open to you know, looping people in and it's like after one PR, he like adds you to the organization. So now I'm, you know, in there with commit access, which is great. That's cool. Um, so it's been really easy to just not only sort of the modularity of Haskell makes it really easy to write libraries on top of you. Um, mm-hmm. like I wrote a markdown library or a pagination library, things like that, but it's also really easy to just get in and do a little commit here or there to add a function or improve docs or whatever. So I've got a bunch of stuff like that out there. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite things, actually, about smaller language communities is like like what we're seeing with the, the Swift guys is like a there are places for you that there are, there are needs that have not been filled and mm-hmm. you kind of like just port tools over like hey we had this nice thing in Ruby like I wish I had this over here we had this yeah. nice thing in Haskell like we should just put this in make this happen in Swift um, and also I feel like 
your contributions have a greater impact. Yeah. Like percentage wise, it's like, oh, you contribute to like the main web framework in Haskell and suddenly yeah. like it's, it, can, it benefits. Yeah. Know. And it's really great to be like, you get to be that person to write the markdown library. Like right. you can't, you can't do that in rails now. There's right. like 37 markdown libraries already right. out there. Um, so that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. On the other hand though, yeah. you have to write the markdown library. That's true. You know? So yeah. how, how do you find the library like situation in Haskell in general? I think it's great. I've, I've yet to not be able to find what I need. It's, really? it's like, very hard to, to like, we found that diff parser. Mm-hmm. I did not expect that to exist, yeah. but there it was, it worked well. It was well tested. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't support like two use cases. So we added that, but you know, other than that, it was pretty much ready to go. Did you guys submit a PR for that? Yeah. Oh, yep. nice. And the guy was super, super active, merged it like within a day. Very cool. Really, really good experience. That's awesome. So one of the things I'm noticing, like as I read more Haskell now, is like the fact that all the functions are annotated with types. Mm-hmm. I find it easier to understand the code. Yeah. Because it's sort of, there's like a, a nice like high level description of everything in the system. Yeah. Do you find it easier to like pick up a new library or pick up and like contribute to something existing because of that? I do. Um, I think that because Haskell's purely functional and functions can't do anything that's not explicit in the type signature Mm -hmm. you can totally understand a function just from its type signature Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing and then the other thing is that you know a lot of people say that haskell is lacking in documentation um, but i don't really believe that because i look at the haddocks which are automatically generated documentation that at a minimum just shows you type signatures Mm -hmm. you can also add explanatory comments and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, but even if i look at you know api documentation that just says type signatures like i know pretty much everything I need to know to use this library. Right. And and unlike a Ruby library where the t- you have documentation which says like promises this method takes of this and does of that, like you know it actually is accurate. It's exactly. up to date. Cannot fall out of date. Absolutely. Because the compiler checks it for you. Yep. Which is kind of kind of beautiful. It's pretty great. Uh, sort of having like that like moment of like, yeah, type systems. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Like have the compiler check things for you instead of you doing it. Yep. Kind of awesome. Cool. Uh, any parting thoughts on Haskell or any of the stuff we talked about? Um, no, I, I wish I had something profound to say, but, um, but come on in. The water's fine. Yeah, really. I'm really, in, I mean, personally, I've been really enjoying like reading and running Haskell lately. So I, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Yeah. So I, I think other people should check it out too. Yeah. And it's, it took a little while to learn. Like it, it's, it does take some effort, but, uh, it's doable. Mm-hmm. It's reasonable. It's approachable. And it, I, I'm liking this new sort of vocabulary I have of like ways of thinking about how functional programming works. Yeah. It's like, I feel like it's going to impact some of my other stuff like closure because it's also a functional language yep. and probably even Ruby because it's got some, some functional yeah. bits in there too. Yeah. So uh, I recommend it as an exercise for people. If you're looking for a language that's unlike the one you're using now, like if you're a Ruby person, give Haskell a try. Absolutely. It'll blow your mind a little bit. Awesome. Uh, so where can people get this book? Should they want to? Uh, it's pretty easy. Maybe Haskell.com. It's hyphenated. So maybe dash Haskell.com. Okay. Also, as a special gift to you, our wonderful and beautiful and talented and intelligent podcast listeners, uh, we're going to offer you 50% off Pat's book if you'd like to pick it up. There is a special link in the show notes, which if you click it, will apply a discount. And you should totally get the book because it's awesome. So today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 137. Thanks for listening.